As I mentioned, uh, uh, interesting passage this morning. We've been uh, in what's known as the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 15. And there we see the last five hours of the Lord's time with his men being spent pouring out, pouring into them. His public ministry was concluded. And so here we're in about the middle of these five chapters in, that cover five hours. Uh, we've been looking at Jesus in the upper room and then at the end of chapter 14 saying, come, let's go from here. And uh, mentioned before that I, I personally believe he went up on the roof because it would have been covered with uh, trellised vines and, and uh, used for shade in that part of the world in the warmer months. And it would have been Passover in the spring. It would have been a full moon because Passover is held on the full moon, the first full moon after the spring equinox. And so there's Jesus with his men. They may have walked through the city. They may have, uh, he may have identified the vine on the temple gate, which was about 60 feet high. And it was a majestic scene there. We don't know exactly where they were, but we do know that Jesus was essentially hammered down with his men because he had a very short amount of time to speak to them before, as he knew, he would go to the cross. Uh, by this time tomorrow, he would have been to the cross, uh, crucified and in the tomb. So a very, very packed period of time. Generally, what I do is I'll, I'll do a sort of a synopsis of what we've been looking at. I'm going to do that in a few minutes, but I want to start with some headlines from this week, from the news since we were here last. The first is Asiya Bibi has been acquitted. And if you know anything about her, she's a Pakistani woman that uh, has been in prison on death row since 2010 when she was convicted of blasphemy against Allah, against Muhammad. And uh, she essentially had, a, she's a Christian woman and she'd had a, a bit of a, a discussion, probably an intense discussion with some of the ladies in her neighborhood. And uh, they turned her in and they condemned her for, to death. Now, uh, Asiya Bibi, a Christian mother of five who's been on death row for blasphemy since 2010, has been acquitted by Pakistan's Supreme Court. Now, this, this story is still in play. Uh, Islamic ex extremists are calling for the death of Mrs. Bibi as well as the Pakistani justices who acquitted her. Uh, uh, the latest news I got was she tried to leave the country on Friday night and was blocked. And they said they would put her on a list of people to leave the country. And some say that's essentially a death sentence. So, uh, please keep her in prayer. This is real stuff that's happening right now. I mean, uh, uh, she has spent eight years away from her, her family, away from uh, everything that she's known for her testimony of Christ. Uh, then here's another headline Tuesday. Uh, Indiana, there was an Indiana missionary murdered in front of his wife and son in Cameroon, which is a, a small nation in West Africa. Central West Africa, American missionary Charles Wesco, husband to Stephanie Wesco and a father of eight, was murdered in front of his wife and son in Cameroon on Tuesday. His wife and one child remained separated from their other seven children due to unrest in the region. That may or may not have been resolved by now. Again, this is, this is unfolding as we go. Wesco and his family from Indiana arrived in the African nation 12 days earlier to serve as missionaries sent by the Believer's Baptist Church in Warsaw, Indiana, a trip that they'd been planning for two years. I went on Stephanie's 
Facebook page last night as I was praying about this and looking at this, and uh, she'd posted an image that says this, uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Speaking of her husband, she's quoting a guy by the name of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary in 1956 in Ecuador, and he was murdered along with four other missionaries there. Uh, very serious work these people are doing. Uh, we're involved here in supporting far-reaching ministries, which is, uh, I mentioned before, very uh, sobering ministry. I mean, they have a black ops division. We can't find out what they're doing. We just go by faith that we're supporting the work that they're doing because it's so dangerous where they are. Uh, so uh, anyway, here's another one. Friday, at least seven were killed in an attack on Christians in Egypt. At least seven Christians have died in an, and an additional 15 injured in Egypt Friday after a violent attack on a group of Coptic pilgrims. The Christians were on their way to visit a desert monastery, monastery when a group of masked gunmen stopped the bus and opened fire. The death toll is expected to rise. I, I don't know if it has or not, but again, uh, this is just two days ago. Uh, here's another one, and, and I say this a bit in jest, just so that I kind of get a little perspective on what we go through as Americans. Friday, the Starbucks holiday cup controversy is back in the news. You know, I, I, I'll tell you guys, I, I struggle with things like this. When I read headlines like this and I see that Christians are making a bit, and I'm not supporting Starbucks by any stretch, and I'm not going to rabbit trail on that. I could go into a major deal on that, and we wouldn't get anywhere. Ron's laughing. <laughs> he knows me. But the point is, is that I love what Pastor Chuck Smith used to say. He said, you know, major in the majors. Don't major in the minors. I am not going to get all twisted up over whether or not a Starbucks cup has a Christmas tree on it. I'm just not. And when I see Christians making a big deal out of that, it's like it grieves my heart because there are far more serious things to occupy our time and our prayers with. Over 3,000 Christians have been killed for their faith in 2018. This is just one person's or one organization's estimate, an organization called Open Doors. It's a, a very old and established mission to persecuted Christians. Uh, that's in, in the 2018 reporting period. It's double the number from 2017. Folks, we see it with anti-Semitism last Saturday or Saturday before yesterday with the shooting in Pennsylvania. We see it happening in our borders. We see it especially happening around the world. I, I did quite a bit of work. And I'm not going to, again, I could just get into the whole deal with the persecuted church. But I want to just lay some groundwork for the passage that we're in this morning. We live in very, very serious times. We live in hard times, and they're going to get tougher before they get better. Guaranteed. Not my opinion. It's what Jesus said would happen as we come to the end of the age. We begin to see, he called it birth pains. He called it sorrows, travail. And travail, birth pains, if you look at them, there are two things about them. They increase in frequency as labor goes on, and they increase in intensity as labor goes on. I just take my word for it. I've never experienced it. But I have it on... <coughs> good report that that's what happens. And we see the things around us. We see what's happening as our culture disintegrates. We see the influence of, of cultural pressures on the church as never before. We live in what is called the post-Christian era. When I came to the Lord 35 years ago, it was still the Christian era, but the door was closing and we've seen it just go just kind of crazy. 
I look around and I see the state of the church and I know that she's his bride and that's his deal. And yet I see the state and, and, and I, I sometimes scratch my head and wonder, are people standing up for anything? And all we can do, folks, a little church with a little bit of power is, is to stand up for what God's word has to say. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, as I mentioned, when we were giving announcements, we're going to cover the, the great stuff, the fun stuff. We're going to cover the hard stuff. And some of the hardest stuff that we may have to endure as Christians is persecution against us. And I'm not talking about coffee cups. <laughs> Recap. From last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at abiding, what it is to abide in Christ. I'm going to look at uh, three things that have to do with abiding. And I want you to understand, this is not just because I think that you're forgetful. I know you are, because I am. But it is because the context in John chapter 15 is everything. We have to look at the entire chapter. As we walk through it, we have to understand that it's about abiding. We have to understand it's about being chosen. We have to understand it's about people hating us. I mean, that's kind of how the progression goes, and they're connected. So three things that have to do with abiding as we look and we recap from two weeks ago. The first is connection. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to have my life intertwined with his that I am reliant upon him. He is the life-giving source for all that I am and all that I do. He is the one with whom I have to do because apart from him, he says, you can do nothing. And nothing means nothing. This is a reciprocal kind of thing. It's that, it's that he says, I am in you and you're in me. Uh, it's that, that as I am connected to him, that that my life is hidden in him, in Christ. And yet, as he, by the Holy Spirit, works in me and nourishes me and gives life to me and gives power to me, then I have the ability to live and I can live above the cut. We talked about that when we talked about his will for us is to not be influenced by circumstances. That's what joy is about. Happiness is communicated from my circumstances to my emotions. Joy is communicated from the Holy Spirit to my spirit, far greater, far deeper. And it is a central part of abiding in Christ about being connected to him. No connection, no life. No life, no fruit. Talked about that. There are branches that are fruitful and they're, they're pruned that they'll produce more fruit. We talked about branches that are not. They're cut off, thrown into the pile and burned. He doesn't say there's a middle ground here, folks. You're either in, you're either for me, or you're against me. There's no fence. The world likes to think that there's a fence we can sit on, but that's just not so. It's patently untrue. It's an excuse to be indecisive so that, well, maybe if I err too far this way, I can get back this way. Or if I go too far, well, I can get back. No, that's nonsense. That's playing games with God. The second one that we look at here, as far as abiding goes, is dependence. And it's dependence on him. This is not reciprocal. He is not dependent upon me for anything. If you think about the, the metaphor that he's using, the vine, the, the grape tree, the, the, the plant itself, being the one that supplies the branches, the branches don't supply anything to the, to the vine. It, this flows one direction. And so we're dependent upon him for everything that we have. We're dependent upon him for our very breath, let alone if there's anything good that comes out of my life, especially when it comes to serving the Lord. Talked about it before, 
and I'll talk about it again. I'll talk about it now. You cannot cover up a weak walk with the Lord with service. Slippery slope, gang. It, 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 I'm telling you, if you think that it's about serving God, you're wrong. It's about fellowship with God. We were created to have fellowship with him. Out of that fellowship, out of the abundance of the relationship that we have, fruitful service flows. But it's never a means towards it. Don't be deceived. We, I've seen that happen with people where they, they cover up a weak walk with service and pretty soon the challenges come and they're upside down. Just allow the Lord to work in your heart. Sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. There are things to do, but you know what? If he has you in a place of sitting, of just simply being a Christian, abiding in the vine, you don't see a, a, a branch struggling to produce fruit. He doesn't want us to be in that place. He'll do it. We simply abide. So we're dependent upon him because without the vine, the branch is useless. It's lifeless and it's powerless. The third thing we see here, and, and I want you to understand, these are not linear. These kind of happen all at once. This is just my, I like handy little lists. So uh, I, I, I just love to break down the word into kind of bite-sized nuggets. And so these are, these, the, I could have made these in any order is what I'm trying to say. The third is continuance. Remember, he starts, he says, you know, that it's, it's my father's will that you bear fruit. And then as he goes on in the passage here in John 15, he says that you bear much fruit. And then he goes on and he says that you bear more fruit. So we see in here, there's a progression. And I don't think that that's by accident. I think it's because we simply grow in the grace and knowledge of him with whom we have to do. It's all by his grace. And as we go through, as we continue to abide in the vine, he produces the fruit. It's the natural outcropping of abiding. It's not something I have to work hard to do. If you're in a place where you're striving with God, you're striving over this, you're striving over that, you can ask my wife, I do not like it when I am striving over something. It means something in my spirit is off. And, and I, the last thing I want to do is start striving over striving. I mean, because I didn't get down a rabbit hole. But the point is, is that, is that he wants us to live a life of peace. He wants us to live a life of fruitfulness. And he wants us to enjoy the walk with him that we have. How can I do that if I'm always striving? I'm, I'm wringing my hands. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm just go, 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 do, do, do. No, he says, why don't you just be? I love in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls them the be attitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those, all of that. They're not do attitudes. They're be attitudes. And there's a life of peace and a life of fruitfulness that awaits each of us. Interesting. When we look at the Greek word emino, it means to remain or to stay. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 38 uh, the, and 39, the disciples, they, had, they weren't disciples yet, but they were following Jesus. He was with John the Baptist on the backside of the Jordan River there. And they, they came to Jesus and said, where are you staying? It's the same word that they use for staying, which means to, to stick around. It's also used, that word is translated endure. It's also translated abide. So as we're abiding in him, this continuance, it's not about being a flash in the pan, folks. It's about 
just knuckling down for the long haul. And you know what? Come what may, I am going to stick with Jesus. I don't care. The world behind me, the cross before me, that's it. It's a single-mindedness and a commitment to him that produces fruit. We're staying. We're abiding. So that's continuance. So when I go up to last week, last week we talked about what it is to be chosen. This is all intro. Boy, I'm going to have to hurry. Um, what it is to be chosen of God. And when we looked at that, we looked at, at, at seven different aspects of being chosen. I had these cute little slides up here. I actually forgot one, and I'll emphasize that when I get there, because one of the guys let me know, hey, you, what happened to that one? Um, but we were chosen for joy. We talked about that a moment ago. Joy is a birthright. It's something the world doesn't get. And it's something that the joy of the Lord is my strength. That statement is there for a purpose, and it's a weighty statement. We were chosen for joy, chosen for love. The, the two great needs that we have is to receive love and to give love. As human beings, as part of how God hardwired us from creation, we have a need to love and to be loved. But the love that Jesus gives us is not like the love that the world gives. It's a wholly different kind of love, the agape love, the deep sacrificial love. And I'm not talking about a warm fuzzies kind of love. Yeah, I love the emotional love, but that's not the love that the New Testament puts forth. This is a durable love. This is a sturdy love. This is a strong love. This is a love that says you before me consistently. That's why Jesus could say with all authority, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And oh, by the way, you might be called upon to do that too. Looked at some contemporary issues today that that comes into play on. So we're called to, for joy, we're called for love, we're called to be his friend. Think about it, folks. What does it mean to be a friend of God? You know, I love science. I love astronomy. I love looking out and saying, well, you know, astronomers now, they keep expanding how big the universe is by how far they can see, which is kind of weird. But... Um, now it's, what, 13 and a half billion light years across, uh, traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles and change per second for a year is one year. And now there's how many billions of years is the universe across? And the Bible tells us that God holds the universe in the span of his hand. That's that big for us. So, I mean, I look at all of that, I think about the majesty of God and the greatness of God and the immensity of God and the fact that he numbers the hairs on my head, which aren't as many as there used to be, but they're still there. And he wants to be my friend. And he chooses friendship with me, with you. Marvelous. We were chosen for privilege and partnership. The world doesn't get what's behind door number one for us. And oh, how my heart grieves at the things that people pass up because they want to be stubborn and be hung in their ways and to say no to Christ. We above all people are the most privileged on earth. A relationship with our creator, a personal one. That he's knowable. Not only is he knowable, he wants to relate to us. He pursues relationship with us. That's privilege. 
in partnership. We talked about that. He could have just, you know, gone to the cross and said, okay, it's good. Anybody wants to believe me, that's fine. But no, he's commissioning these guys. It's what he's doing with these guys this night. He is letting them know there is work to do. And it's the most important work you'll ever do. And I'm choosing you. I'm selecting you to do this work. Knowing that they would mess it up. Knowing that they were frail men. But pouring out his grace on their lives. Pouring out his grace on our lives. Yeah. We were chosen for partnership with him. That's why it's called the great co-mission. Chosen to be an ambassador. This one I dropped out last week. I was in a hurry to close. Anyway, but to be an ambassador, and you understand what an ambassador is. You represent the king and his kingdom. You don't represent your own interests. That's not what an ambassador does. And the Bible tells us that we're ambassadors for Christ. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation to a a messed up, screwed up, upside down, lost, dying world. Partners. Ambassadors. Chosen advertiser. I remember Donna up here last week. For those of you who weren't here, one of the gals got up and talked about the women's retreat, and she was so excited. I told her later, I wanted to give you pom-poms. It's like, yay, go team, go, you know, all this stuff. Um, Just advertising. I mean, you, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel. You put it out there for everybody to see. That's, I've been in the advertising business for 44 years. That's advertising. That's a good message. We ended with John chapter 15, verse 17, when Jesus said, These things I command you, that you love one another. You know, as I've been looking at this chapter, and this is, I'm going to take a rabbit trail. This is a purposeful rabbit trail uh, that'll take us a few minutes. I don't have slides for it. Uh, we're just going to go back to the title slide and, uh, and call it good. But in Philippians chapter 1, I've been looking at Philippians, at the life of the Apostle Paul. Here is Paul. He's in jail in Rome. He's actually, this is his first imprisonment. He would spend about two years in Rome, and then he'd be released, and then he'd be back because uh, that was just part of what God had for him. And here he is. He's in Rome, and Philippians is known as the most joyful letter in all of the New Testament. And here Paul is chained to a Roman guard, a Praetorian guard in the household of Caesar. And he's writing this joyful letter to this church in Philippi, a little town in Asia Minor. Um, And and, in Philippians 1, I'm going to go through verses 3 through 14 and look at seven things that parallel John 15. I, I was reading this and I was just kind of blown away. It's like, wow, Paul is living out what Jesus is laying out here. And so in in. Philippians 1, verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. So in 1511, Jesus talks about his joy remaining in the disciples, that their joy would be full. And Paul's joy here is full. Chained to a guard in a hostile nation with people that were after him every step of the way. In in, Verse 16, he says, whatever, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I'll give you. And Paul is praying here, and he's praying consistent with the name of Jesus. I'm asking, making requests for you all with joy. Verse 5 in Philippians 1, he says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, 
that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In chapter 15 of John, verse 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Who has begun a good work in you? Jesus. Who's going to complete it? Jesus. And he's going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's going to complete it until your time here is done. In verse 16 of John 15, Jesus emphasizes that the purpose for your fruit is to glorify him, to glorify his Father, and that your fruit should remain. He doesn't want flash in the pan, as I mentioned. He wants abiding fruit. Verse 7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Picture yourself in a jail, chained to the guard, languishing, or just, not, that's not the right word, but, but enjoying, just, just bathing in the grace of God. It seems like an oxymoron. I would think I would be stressing out, hoping that grace would come. But Paul saw his circumstances being perfectly aligned with God's will for his life. And therefore, he could rejoice. In chapter 4, he goes into a whole thing on rejoicing and, and, and talks about he's learned the secret of, of doing well, whether his life is abased or it abounds. And, and here, he's, he's exhorting these and encouraging these Philippian Christians, you know what? It might look bad, but God has this. And that's what he's stressing to these people. He says, uh, just, it, apart from, he says it's right, just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart and as much as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Over and over in these chapters in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus' instruction to these men, love one another as I have loved you. And that's what Paul's doing here with these people. He's expressing the love of Christ to them. Verse 9, and, I, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment. Um, Verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul understood that fruit in his life had one destination, God's glory. That was to glorify God. And there he is. He's, he doesn't have, I mean, I can think of far better circumstances. And yet he's rejoicing. He's looking at this as a fruitful experience. He's looking at it. My life is in God's hands and I'm going through tough circumstances and God is going to vindicate himself through these. He's going to be glorified by it. That's what Jesus is putting across to these, these men before he goes to the cross. This, he, they have got to learn to abide. They've got to learn to love because I'll tell you what, it's going to get really tough out there for these guys and it gets tough out there for us and it's going to get tougher for us. Yeah, we look at what's happening in other countries where it's like, man, oh man, the, the gloves are off. But I'll tell you, folks, it's not going to get easier. 
And we need to be sober-minded about the things of God. And as we are responsible in our part, he is responsible in his heart to produce fruit, the fruit of his spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I pray through that list on a regular basis because in myself, I don't have them. Nor do you. It's the fruit of his spirit. And if I can manufacture them, there's usually something attached. He says, no, no attachments. Just let me work in you and through you. Let me manifest, manifest my life in you that I can work through you that you represent me well. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. In verse 12, he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. When was the last time you went through a really tough time and could make that claim? And I'm not saying that to produce guilt. I'm just saying that that's his perspective. So that it has become evident the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul never talked about himself as a prisoner of Rome. If you look at it in Ephesians, he talks about being a prisoner of Christ. And there's a big difference. It has all to do with his perspective on what he was going through being to further the gospel. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, these are the guys that were chained to him, were actually getting saved. They were actually coming to faith in Christ. Chained him to a guard. The guy, all of a sudden, he's like, Yahoo. Uh, he said, they're more bold to speak with the word without fear. So did Paul understand what persecution was? Yeah, he did. Beaten, imprisoned, scourged, run out of half the towns in the Roman Empire, left for dead, shipwrecked, and finally imprisoned and then decapitated in Rome in his second imprisonment. And the only reason he was not crucified is because he was a Roman citizen and he had the option to go for a Roman uh, execution as opposed to a Gentile, or as opposed to a non-Roman execution, which was crucifixion. So, he understood what persecution was and he could write with joy, not his joy, but the joy of the Lord. Back in John chapter 15 in verse 18, Jesus says this, he says that the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So now these guys, again, these guys thought they entered this room this night, they entered the, the upper room there to have Passover, to have dinner with Jesus, and they thought that they were headed for glory. They thought that they were headed for earthly glory anyway. They thought that he was going to set up his kingdom. They were going to kind of have management jobs, you know, maybe an office next to his. That'd be good. Jesus, you know, your right or your left, you know. My mom thinks so. You know, we talked about that with James and John. <laughs> And think about, I mean, by this point in the conversation, I mean, their jaws, they've recovered some and their jaws are not on the floor anymore. Now he's telling them, oh, by the way, this isn't going to be wonderful for you. I chose you and you're going you're gonna to be hated. The same way that they've hated me, they're going to hate you. He hoped to comfort his disciples by letting them know um, yeah, sorry, I lost, lost my place. He hoped to comfort his disciples with the knowledge that the world's hatred 
was because it was first directed at him. I don't think that that probably brought them a lot of comfort. But remember in the Beatitudes, this is not new news to these guys. In the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when men revile you and cast insults at you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Great is your reward in heaven on account of me. It's because of me. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you've ever had anybody come down on you. I was looking at some old letters. Uh, I remember getting a letter six years ago from a family member that absolutely just dressed me down. And it was a family member that didn't like what I stand for, that didn't want to hear about Christ. And I addressed it and dealt with it. But it was very hurtful. It was very painful to read that and to to know that that was what was being thrown at me. And that's nothing compared to what people endure for the cause of Christ. Yeah, it's significant. Nobody likes it when somebody does that, especially when it's somebody that you've been close to all your life. You know, he, Jesus attracted attention from the multitudes throughout his ministry. He got a big following at one time. Then he emptied it out, remember? He said, you got to drink my blood and eat my body and all that. And, and then people started to follow again. And then when he came into town here just earlier this week, he came in and the crowds came with him down the hill from the Mount of Olives. And, and then they came out from the city and these two crowds just converged and this big hoopla going on. And man, they're screaming, Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders are telling him to be, tell these guys to be quiet. And he says, they're quiet. The stones are going to cry out. The whole deal. And, and they're, they're just, they're so excited. And by tomorrow morning, they would be the same ones that were shouting, crucify. Give us Barabbas, our political uh, sort of, our, our mascot. We don't want this Messiah if this is, if he hasn't done a thing for us all week. And, and, and I mean, the crowd went from loving him to hating him because when the mask came off, that's what they had. The verb hate here, uh, the Greek word, you don't have to remember, it's mimesikin. It implies the world's hatred is a fixed attitude towards him because it's in the perfect tense. In other words, it's a continual tense. All right? And perfect tense means it's ongoing. And so this is a fixed attitude, and it's one that carries over to his disciples. It carries over to you and I. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. I heard that 35 years ago. I had no idea. And and I'm not disqualifying that, because his plan is wonderful. It just doesn't look a whole lot like my plan. He wants to work in us. He wants to work through us. He wants to accomplish his will through us to a world that's, as I mentioned, it's just messed up. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus says this. He says, blessed are you. Oh, how happy. That's what it means. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. Uh, New American standard is ostracize you. When they revile you or insult you and they cast out your name as evil they scorn you again four verbs new king james hate exclude revile cast out your name as evil uh 
New American Standard, hate, ostracize, insult, and scorn. Same thing, just saying it a little differently. Look at our cultural conversation out there, folks. Look at what's going on in the world. And I'm not talking about just towards the body of Christ, but yes, absolutely towards the body of Christ. Our cultural conversation has become very hateful, very ostracizing, insulting, and scornful. The letter I got from that member of my family who I adore was just that. It ostracized me for my faith, insulted me, said I'd been wasting my life on these religious follies, and was just plain scornful. That's about as bad as it's ever gotten for me. Not like a Christian on a bus in Egypt on Friday. And it's not like a guy that just moved his family and eight kids to an African nation to serve the Lord. And there's no evidence, by the way, of that particular attack being motivated because they were Christians. But the response of his wife, the response of there were two other missionaries in, in the same vehicle with them, they were immediately praying for their attackers. I, I watched a video of his parents broken, praying for their attackers. And my heart was touched. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. One more chosen slide here, folks. Chosen. Because I'm chosen, the world hates me. The world doesn't oppose its own. The old saying, misery loves company. People out there in the world binging along, doing their own thing. Have you ever noticed it's the same car? I did. I, I grew up, I had alcoholic parents, and kind of a rough childhood in some ways. And, and, and it was always the same cars in the parking lot down at the bar. The world doesn't oppose its own. You know, I, I hear about people that are, that are messed up on meth, and there's a whole group of them together that got busted. They don't oppose their own. There's a silent thing. It tells us in the book of Romans that, that men come up with ways to do evil and then they, they heartily endorse those who do the same. When we look out there, folks, we are called to be separate, chosen, appointed. You're actuated by the love of God and the pursuit of holiness. That's what I want. Lifelong pursuit. The world is actuated by the love of sin, by the love of darkness, by the love of self, by the love of wealth, by the love of, and just fill in the blanks, the things that, that men pursue. And they're empty. They're futile. Those pursuits will yield nothing in eternity's perspective. Yet Jesus is saying that they're going to hate you. It's not without significance that disciples are to be known by their love and the world by its hatred. Understand that going in. Verse 20, remember the, the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. In, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, it's enough. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. But if, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is the prince of demons, how much more will they call those of his household? He's telling his disciples the same thing there that he's telling his disciples here. Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, you have the best defense in the universe. And you can count on him to cover you. You can count on him to protect you. I love in Isaiah, there's a promise. There's no weapon formed against you shall prosper. The Lord has it. I don't understand why a missionary goes to Cameroon, Africa and is there for 12 days and is taken home to heaven, leaving a wife and eight kids. I don't understand it. I'm going to say this carefully. My heart goes out to his wife, to their children, and they're praying that God's purposes would be vindicated through it that God would use this for his glory. In Genesis chapter 50, there's Joseph with his brothers and, and the ones that had thrown whole years and years before. And they discover that, that he knows all about them. They even try to you know, tell him, well, dad said before he died, don't mess with us and all this other stuff. But then they're thinking that he's going to kill them. And he says, no, no, no. I, I'm, of course, paraphrasing. He says, no, you meant it for evil against me. But God has worked it for good. The circumstances that we go through, we don't understand them often. Often they knock us off our pins, man. They're hard. And we may go through harder stuff. We go through periods of breaking, periods of trial, periods where, where we feel like Jeremiah, there's nobody left but me. I'm the only one standing. And God says, no, you're not. There are others. Take courage. Jesus is telling these guys this stuff because soon he will be invisible to them as he is invisible to us. He is preparing these guys to get out there on the field that they would do battle in. And I'm not talking about physical battle, physical warfare, but they would be doing battle. Yes, sir, they would be. And it would be a battle that would lead to the end of their lives. And 11 of them, these 11 here in this room, in their hearing, except for John, would die. For the testimony of Christ. Remember, we're in a war. Here's something that Dwight Moody wrote. He said, he was quoting a, a general. He said, a general was leading his army to battle and his men asked what he would give them. His response was hunger, cold, wounds, and death. As they were silent for a time, then they threw up their hands and said, we will go. I love that. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Interesting. What is our response? What is our response when people revile us, cast insults at us, when people persecute us? What is our response? What is the response that he wants to produce in us? That's actually a, a more accurate way to state it. In Luke chapter 6, we see something, some insight that Jesus gives here. He says, uh, in verse 32, he says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Listen to this. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. You mean, God, you're kind to those creeps? What it says. You're going to reach people through the love that you have. I know the need you're... Somebody pushes me, what's the first response that I want to do? I'm going to push them back. He says, no, that's not how the kingdom operates. This is one of those principles, folks. Like I said, we're going to cover the easy stuff and the tough stuff. And this is tough stuff because he says, no, you don't have that right. As a follower of mine, your response is love. Your response is to pray for them. Your response is to understand my heart towards them. You know, many times in my life, I have simply wrapped up a, a, a thought process about a person or a situation with, you know, that's somebody for whom Christ died. The people that shot that missionary are, are men for whom Christ died. The men that shot that bus full of innocent people going to on a religious pilgrimage or whatever it was in Egypt on Friday are people for whom Christ died. I'm not making excuses for their sin. Their sin is horrible. I'm saying that our Father's heart is He loves all of us. He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. He never endorses sin. That's not it. But He loves the sinner. One of the things that the world doesn't get about us is that we separate that. We are called to love the sinner, love the person, hate the sin. The world, because they don't see through spiritual eyes, lumps it all into one and they call us the hateful ones. Our culture is calling Christians hateful these days when we are anything but. But there's a disconnect because they don't have the mind of Christ to understand how we can discern these things. Love the sinner, hate the sin. He says, therefore be merciful just as your father is merciful. Here's the point. If people don't know God as he really is, they often attack and persecute those who represent God in some way. It's the cause for sympathy in the persecuted for their persecutors. When Jesus was on the cross, he would say before this day was out, because in a Jewish day it started sunset and it went till sundown the next day. Before this day would be out, by three o'clock in the afternoon, Hanging on the cross, one of the most profound things that he would say is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when we're dealing in a world of people that literally don't know what they're doing, they don't understand the things of God. They don't understand the power of the gospel. They don't understand you or me as representation of that God and of that gospel. It behooves us to turn the other cheek. It behooves us to say, you know what? I'm good. To love them. 
hard. You can't do it yourself, folks. You can't. You don't have the ability. I don't have the capacity to love like that. But Christ in me, my only hope for glory, does. And that is something that will set you apart from everyone you know that's not a believer. When they say mercy, compassion, instead of I want justice. Charles Wesco, there were a couple of other missionaries in, in his car. He, he and his wife, Stephanie, were traveling when the bullets came through the car and one struck him in the head. Ben and Becca Sinclair were riding in the same car with him and Becca reported that it wasn't long before her husband was lifting up the, the murderers, his friend's murderers in prayer. Hard. Hard. But glorifying to God. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. We've seen that in this gospel before. Jesus is very clear to indicate, look, if you're hating me, you're hating God. And what he's telling his men is if they're hating you, they're hating me, i.e., they're hating God. If they're coming against you and you don't, and you're, you know, we will suffer for doing what's right. Peter says a whole lot better to suffer for doing what's right than for doing what's wrong. And as we suffer for what, doing what's right, people are going to hate us. They're going to misunderstand us. They're going to accuse us of being the hateful ones. They'll pile that onto us when it's actually their attitude. He says, understand it. Know that it's going to come. It's going to happen. It's part of it. If it's not happening to you, if it's never happened to you, you might want to tighten up on your walk. The point is, that's part of living in this world, in this fallen world. John 18, 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He's saying you are without excuse. The world is without excuse. Period. Verse 24, if, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. He uncovers the inner corruption and hypocrisy in a person's life. And they react violently. I don't want to hear it. It says in chapter 1 that the men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. They don't want light. Light is repulsive to somebody that's walking in darkness. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They're, they will push against you. Sometimes violently. Know that it's part of what we are called to. Verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. He's quoting Psalm 69, verse 4. It's a prophetic fulfillment saying essentially that there is no just cause for the world to hate him. As much as there was no just cause for King David to be hated by the ones that were pursuing him. When he penned that, and Jesus is saying, you know, I agree with what the psalm says. There is not a cause. This is not something that should cause people to hate. Think about it, folks. We of all people should be the kindest, most generous, and, and welcoming and loving people on earth, and they hate us for it. They hate us without a cause. Unless we give them a cause. That's a whole different story. But <laughs> Verse 26, but when the helper comes... 
whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Ah. Verse 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. We're going to go into the ministry of the Holy Spirit at length in chapter 16. Beautiful, beautiful passage there about the working of the Holy Spirit as he convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and, and, and that he guides us into all truth and that he glorifies Jesus in our lives. We'll look at that, we'll unpack that. But here, when he says, he says, here's the Holy Spirit, he's going to come and, and, and he will be in you. He's now with you, but he will be in you. And so he'll bear witness. And you've been with me from the beginning. He's talking about that partnership that we were talking about earlier. I love at the end of the Bible, and we'll wrap up with this. At the end, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, it says, and the Spirit and the bride, that's the Holy Spirit and us, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Powerful passage. At the end of God's wrath being poured out on the earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, this Holy Spirit and the church and you and I beckoning, come. Drink of the water of life freely. That's the water that we've drank. That's the water that flows in us, the living water, the work of Christ. Not always an easy calling, folks, but one that I would never want to shrink back from. Always worthwhile. Let's pray. Father, just, uh, oh, with a, a brief look here, I feel like I could just keep going. Lord, we, we pray, uh, each of us, Lord, uh, that you would touch our hearts, that you would cause us not to be people that react to the world around us, but that we respond with Christ, that we respond by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we respond knowing your will, Lord, is that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. We know that not all will, but we know that's your job, not ours. So I pray, Father, use us. Drive your word deeply into our hearts. Help us to respond rightly to the things around us. We pray, Father, for the family of uh, the missionary who was slain in Africa. We pray, Father, you'd get them home, uh, Stephanie and their children, uh, safely uh, as they're struggling now, I understand. And so we, we lift them up to you. We pray for the families of the Christians killed in Egypt on Friday, Lord, the senseless killing, people who hate you, and simply through that, hate them and us. So we pray, Father, work in us. We yield to you, Lord, today. We pray that you would bring to our remembrance the things we've looked at this morning, that you'd be glorified by it. Produce fruit in our lives, Lord, as we simply abide in the vine. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.